If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So last week we spoke a little bit about what a live album is, the different definitions of that, and some of our favourites, and this week we're going to talk about the three ones that we think are good examples of that. Let's do it. So Dave, you're up, chronologically speaking. Yeah, so 1975, but I mean, it's fairly well on in Miles Davis. Agarta? How do, you, how do you spell it? Aghar- A-G- Agharta. A G H A G H A R T A. So um, yeah, by, by Agartha is a, a reference proposed by uh, the record label CBS Sony to the the. It's a subterranean utopian city, and <laughs> a like sort of Here we go. esoteric lore. But apparently, this is suggested by the record label, not um, not by the jazzists. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is some sort of legendary city that was um, Alexandre Saint-Yves de Eldre, who was a French occultist. He was the first to publish a reliable account of Hagarta. But I mean, reliable. Uh, can we can we add inverted commas to that, please? <laughs> but I mean, you could go down a whole a whole um, well a hole down <laughs> a hole. yeah, yeah. Uh, just finding out about Hagarta and then nineteenth-century French occultists. Uh, can I can I just uh, something really interesting that I noticed about this a bit like the Lou Reed 
thing earlier on where they released a second album from the same day. Uh, Agartha was performed on the exact same day as they as he also performed the album Pangea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Pangaea being the sort of u- like unified continent of all the different continents on Earth before tectonic drift. Um, but yeah, those came from the same sessions in Tokyo. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. In Osaka, uh, they were. It was Osaka, I think. Yeah, but it was all yeah. So it was part of like this big tour that they were doing in Japan. It was the festival hall in Osaka. I thought they were recorded in the the record label premises. Is that not right? No. 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 Um, not this record. Maybe. Pangea might have been part of that then. But yeah, so Miles Davis is a deep hole to get into. Yes. <laughs> um, so I'm just going to sort of skim over jazz and... Yeah, yeah of, course. It, of course. You know, it's pretty much... you could There have literally been theses, thesi, thesi uh, written on this album. Yes, there has. Um, so, you know, if you want a PhD, then you can go down and do it. But uh, Miles Davis, possibly the most influential figure in jazz, definitely one of the most influential figures in 20th century music for sure and i mean i first listened to kind of blue which is probably his go-to record mm-hmm. so that was from 59 the melodic Miles davis yeah, that's what I always associated Miles Davis with for a long time. You know, I think I first got into it when I was like 19 or something. And that's a very nice sit down, put the record on, have a glass of wine, put on the ambient lighting <laughs> and enjoy. Uh, you know, d- you know, classy yeah, dinner party I, music. Can I, can I make a, an observation here? Obviously, during the course of this, I was like, I don't know a lot about Miles Davis. I know, I know how influential he was. Mm-hmm. But I know that I've tried to listen to him in the past and never really clicked. Whenever I go about listening to Miles Davis, I always feel faintly absurd. <laughs> I always feel like I'm sort of trying to imagine my life as a spy thriller. Do you feel like you're in Frasier or something? <laughs> I feel like no, I feel like I'm in a 70s sort of spy drama and it, it, it doesn't wash. Yeah, it definitely I, I ties up. I, I like you can see yourself as, you know, Michael Caine making a <laughs> yeah. smoothie and, you know, or something. Um, Finding Nazis. Yeah, right, exactly. But if you go deep on My- Miles Davis, he had different groups and Akarta is kind of into his third main sort of lineup. And he'd gone through, you know, melodic stuff and he'd gone through jazzy stuff and funky stuff. And he then started taking a lot of drugs as well. <laughs> and getting ill. Um, he was very ill. And getting very yeah. ill. Mm. Very ill. And also broke both his legs as well yep. uh, at one point. He was uh, he was 48 years old when he did this mm. record. Yeah. Mm. And like one of the things that's said about this record, because, I mean, this record was, was panned by contemporary critics. Yeah. Um, totally alienated the jazz heads, I noticed. Yeah, yeah because but but it also because of the nature of it, it's very rambunctious. It started to attract a lot of rock fans. Yeah, I mean, even like 
Robert Palmer said that he was very influenced by it. Another thing that's that's said by it is that it's one of the jazz records that has most been aware of non-jazz. Mm. And it's taken on electronic, it's taken on prog, it's taken on funk, it's taken on rock, it's taken on metal. There was a good analogy, actually. It was described as being as polarising uh, in some corners as the Dylan sort of Royal Albert Hall. Yeah, um, absolutely. Like it, it, it was seen as being as controversial as that for people that were into jazz and into Davis specifically. They were like, what the fuck's he doing? He's ruining all these blows. This was later referred to but as you know electric the- period, right? So like, this is when he was mm-hmm. doing stuff which was a bit off the wall. Well, Kind of what was after bitches brew and all that, so like people should have seen this coming. He was kind of doing fusion yeah. already. Yeah, I mean, you know? he, he'd not been, uh, you know, he'd not been playing about and you know playing it safe mm-hmm. for you know no. for fifteen years. You There was a great description of this album as the sound of a man at the end of his rope. Yeah. But, but you can really hear that he was fed up, he felt boxed in, he felt like really constrained by people's expectations and that this was him throwing that off. And sort of he was of an age where he wasn't too concerned with the consequences of that. Yeah, he absolutely. Was already, he, was, he was Miles Davis. He was he was already Miles Davis trademark. Yeah. And he was like, fuck it, fuck it. Let's, let's use this experiment and you can hear like hendrix influence mm-hmm. on it and yeah, big time big time yeah. um and i mean there's a by the way by the way can i just say not just hendrix but hendrix's band yeah as well that's one of the things when you talked about the iterations of the band so the guy al foster that drums in this and especially the bassist michael henderson michael henderson got fucking hammered by especially jazz critics for this album but michael henderson had miles davis poached him from stevie wonder yeah he literally went up to st- backstage at a stevie wonder concert and went stevie i'm taking your bassist And Miles Henderson was a—he was like a teenager at the time. Imagine that. Yeah. He just played for Stevie Wonder. <laughs> he got poached by Miles Davis at the age of what, like 18, 19 and he hadn't—he didn't even know who Miles Davis was. He just—he was like, right, cool, we'll go and do this. And he—he he was just so well f- suited to this new groove-led direction because Miles Davis was really into like the kind of funkadelic Parliament thing as well, mm-hmm. and he wanted to sort of pursue more of that. So it, it, it was really, really interesting to see how this combination of musicians that initially were sort of berated. Um, especially by purists uh, lent themselves so well to this vision and the playing, you're right the Hendrix thing, but I think it's Hendrix and his band there's a, there's a rowdiness to the whole thing, Hendrix didn't hog the limelight completely with his band yeah, his the, band the were unbelievable yeah and I think this is this is a good example of that exact thing in action. Yeah, you've also got like explorations of like Afrocentric sort of funk grooves and cross rhythms coming in, and like the the live band here are fucking unbelievable. Yeah, totally. But yeah, you're right. It does sound like this album could not be not live. Um, exactly. Yeah. And I I just think it's like it's incredible how deep musicologists have to go to find the core parts of what they're playing of you know of previously written things but like improvisation is just so huge on this I would love to just 
go into it for hours and hours but mm. it's just like what a I don't know yeah exactly but it's just it just feels so on edge and uh, you just, just get into it's groove of it is fucking unreal yeah. it's kind of frantic I think it's that's very frantic that, that, that's what I took away from it what I thought was interesting and I always to you as well Dave actually I owe this to you and to Rick uh, Rick Bruce that we mentioned earlier on because you both highlighted another Miles Davis album called Dark Magus yeah and which was from the year before And, yeah, and this features some reworked versions of stuff from Dark Magus. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if I'm being completely honest, I think I slightly preferred Dark, Ma- Dark Magus because it's incredibly dark. Yeah. I mean, I think Rick, Rick described it as the sound of like Miles Davis if on the way to the gig he was pulled over by cops and subjected to some racial harassment by some like southern mm-hmm. police. Um, there is a real sound of him stepping out onto stage being pissed off and just feeling really uncooperative with the audience. And this is a this is a much rowdier, more party-minded version of that to me. It's it's fun. It's a good fun listen. It's like you could stick this on at a party, whereas Dark Magus would be a bit weird. Yeah, Dark Magus. I like I really like Dark Magus, but like there's something about this like I was walking around town with this yesterday and i i ended up walking about 12 miles just and like listen to it three times just because I, yeah. I just want to keep going um and it it captures the energy and like so james mtumbe the mtumbe mtumbe james mtumbe the uh i'm not even the drummer and percussionist <laughs> like the way that he describes the energy of the band Um, So this is what he says Our concerts began like a balloon that was incredibly compressed After that it was a matter of gradually letting the air out The energy it took us to play at that level was enormous There were times that we had to lie down after we had finished playing Before the concert we'd build this energy up We looked at each other and said Let's go through the wall That was our slogan It meant taking it as far as we could physically To stay at that level of concentration and energy For two to three hours Was going through the wall Yeah and like yeah, that reminds cool. me of um, what's that fucking drumming uh, jazz drumming film that came out a couple of years ago Whiplash, Whiplash. Yeah. Whiplash. and like that's what like I enjoyed that film because it got that sense of pure live angst and energy that Kiss don't have yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to say it shut up <laughs> It's pure live energy, and it's not a recording of just a band doing songs, and that's yeah. that's why I really like it. You know, I mean, there's, there's there's some aspects of this that came in for particular criticism. I mean, it's, there's no denying that it's it's a really visceral totally. record. Uh, it was a it was a shock to the audience. I think actually there's some interesting accounts of even the audience in Japan that witnessed it. Mm-hmm. The record label and stuff. The record label were actually really into Miles Davis pursuing the rock direction. I mean, for their perspective, it, it opened up new markets. But I think they saw the, the the product has been pretty high quality. But certainly the critics and the purists didn't agree. On the the actual day of the show as well, he got pulled up for sta- uh, playing me's back to the audience, which was seen as being a really sort of ungracious kind of thing to do. And also, I think sonically, because he uses a wah wah on the trumpet, it's so 
significantly alters the, the tone, which is a very important thing mm-hmm. if you're jazz-minded, or at least purist jazz-minded, is the, the true, honest tone, the beauty of the tone of each individual instrument, that some folk didn't like that. Don't fuck with the tone, you know? But, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an inspiring record. It's really, really yeah. interesting. You can see that it... it, it, it made a big dent in the, the psyche of a lot of musicians and reading some uh, of the contemporary reviews are fucking brilliant as well though yeah like um it's not just a bad record but a sad record <laughs> um it lacked wit harmony and taste um one of the most divisive records ever it was claimed just at the time comparing it to lou reed's metal machine music Gary Giddens from The Village Voice, he's the one that said it was just a bad record but also a sad one and said that the trumpeter doesn't exploit the backbeat, he succumbs to it, the worst consequence is not the ensuing monotony. But then, like apparently after a few days after that review was uh, published, he was sent a package full of large cotton swabs, industrial strength scouring pads and a card that read, the next time you review Miles Davis, clean out your head. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, people were definitely on it as well. Um, Early trolling. There's, there's two things that I loved about this record, uh, and Dave, I have to say, it was fucking incredible. <laughs> like, I could not mm. believe how good it was when I heard it. Yeah, I'm glad that you enjoyed like, it. I like Bitches Brew a lot, man, but it's, it's something you need to be in the mood to listen to and you got to take it down, you know. Um, Bitches Brew is tiring. Yeah, it's tiring, but it's, it's full of inspired moments. Um, one thing that I love about it is that this is Miles Davis's band leader, not his, mm-hmm. not his Yeah, exactly. Not his he doesn't, man. like, he's not the star in mm. terms of musicianship. Yeah. Um, but he he's the leader of the band and it's the sound of him doing whatever the fuck he wants as a band and the, the second thing is Pete Cozy the, the lead guitar player um, he vanished after playing with Miles Davis he just st- stopped doing he just stopped recording when he left Miles Davis' yeah. band well I mean um, you know it's an interesting fact that Miles Davis just shortly after this album didn't play trumpet again for five yeah, years yeah he retired after this record yeah because he, he was fucked like it's had popped out during this concert had yeah. to put it back in <laughs> like that, you know, like he was, he had recurring bouts of pneumonia, he was self-medicating with all the fucking drugs and all the booze, you know, and then eventually died of what seemed like it was age-related, not very long after, like 15 years after this, you know? Yeah, 91, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, um, so. so like, and, and see when he did go back and play trumpet, that's when things get interesting, because he, he becomes properly commercial. I don't know if you've noticed yeah. that, but all the records when he came back were all on major labels and there was all, like, working with contemporary musicians and doing, like, some of the stuff that's charted the highest in his career, just, like, proper... Like, yeah, like, big pop stuff. Yeah, big, big big band jazz and all that, you know? Like, he completely left... I think after this record, he was like, I'm completely done with this feeling and this kind of vibe and the jazz that I'm playing. He kind of put jazz fusion of this kind to one side. Maybe he just couldn't... He couldn't... His body couldn't take those extremes anymore. Possibly, it? yeah. And then what's interesting is, just in terms of, you know, d- direct legacy uh, and influence, you've got, you know, the likes of, you know, British jazz, then new wave and punk rock, bands like the Voidoids, uh, then down to, like, Cabaret Voltaire, and then even uh, Beastie Boys said it was a huge influence on ill communication. So, yeah, yeah like, great record, awesome. mad. Fine choice. Very good choice. All right, well, uh, in that case, I'm up. Yeah, I mean, I don't need to spend a lot of time on who Neil Young is. You guys know. And we've done him before with Jonah as well, so. 
so this album Mirrorball it's, it comes under Neil Young although it's technically Neil Young and Pearl Jam dates from 1995 and I will say straight off the bat that very few of the, the tracks on this album would make a Neil Young best of I, 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 that's not the point of this album really with the possible exception of the track I'm the Ocean which I think is an especially good moment on it What this is, um, is a very, very consistent album in terms of vibe and sound. It's it's very easy, it's kind of light. I mean, it's, it's not always cheery, but it's got a lightness, a breathiness, an airiness to it that I think makes it really easily digestible. I think, like, I would maybe compare it to like being like a kind of light lager <laughs> versus like taking a shot or a, a, a wine or a cocktail, you know. It's, or an it's, absinthe it's, of Miles Davis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yes, yeah, it's it's very drinkable. It's it's a summary record. I don't mean it. I, I don't want to like misrepresent it as being background music. It's not, but it's the kind of record that if you want a mood, if you want a vibe, it goes on and it stays fairly true to that without getting. I mean, okay, maybe maybe some people find this stuff quite samey, but I, I like Neil Young, and without getting too samey, there's a fair variation in the tempos and stuff. It's just got a nice sense of purpose and identity um i mean i find neil young as like ultimate driving music summertime driving music road trip stick on neil absolutely and i think the the electrified nature this the overdriven nature of it the slightly grungy nature of it makes it especially good for that another reason is the fact that songs are so long they're quite repetitive it's about as close as grunge gets to kraut rock where you have that kind of dylan-esque thing of like five or six different verses i mean i'm the ocean i think has six verses so i mean it's long I mean, it is what it is. It, it, it's intended to be that. It's not overlong in the sense that they miscalculated it. He fully embraces that format. Yeah, so it, it was largely split over two sessions. He'd apparently gone in with a few tunes, uh, especially Song X, which is number one, and Act of Love, which is number two. They were written prior. There were other tracks that went in that didn't make the cut. The rest of the tracks on this album uh, were all written during those four days, which is another ingredient, I think, that makes it a little bit special. There is a spontaneity about it. There's definitely some of the tracks could have been refined and turned into singles or have three minutes cut out of them in, oh, in yeah. places. But <laughs> Yeah, but that's, that's not what it's about. It's not trying to be Pearl Jam's 10. Or it's not trying to find hit singles. It's simply a project that they've collaborated on and they're going for a groove and a feeling and a, a kind of sense of like, I don't know. To be honest, they just sound like they're having fun. I think Eddie Vedder particularly enjoyed it, being out of the limelight. There's two tracks he actually sang on that ended up not being included on it, but appeared later on Pearl Jam's uh, Merkin Ball, which they, they released as an EP. Yeah, I mean, words that have been used uh, in relation to this by various reviewers are like casual, roomy, rough, lively, energetic, 
raw. Um, there's a lot of like feedback in it from the guitars. There's a lot of like room noise. There's there's a lot of chatter before and after the mm-hmm. songs, which I think kind of contributes to the kind of friendliness of the overall record. They just I think some like two weeks prior they'd just done some big charity concert together and that this was just their idea let's get together and just in a very short space of time working some tunes together enjoy each other's company and make this thing happen and I think it's one of the genuinely one of the best examples of that happening it doesn't elevate it to the level of like an all time this album is a banger but it's a very very successful experiment uh, as I see it also I would say it Rolling Stone magazine's review of it at the time particularly credited its uh, successful execution to the level of performance that Pearl Jam were operating at. I mean, Pearl Jam had been touring heavily. They were very, very popular in America, far more popular than they were over here. They have been a consistent band in terms of lineup for most of their career. I mean, okay, um, what's his name? Fabe Soundgarden joined in drums. Matt Cameron joined in drums uh, before... Well, after Yield sometime, but um, more or less, you got a fairly stable lineup, and that that really backs. They're, they're more than just a backing band on this. They contribute to it in a way that just a bunch of hired hands just never would have. Yeah, so I mean, without dwelling on it too much, um, Song X uh, is fine. It's a nice intro. Act of Love is a kind of stomper. Again, not my favourite tune in the album, one of the ones that was written prior, but it's a, a kind of typical Neil Young tune. Um, number three, as I said, is the one that really jumps out of this to me, I'm the Ocean, which I think is a lovely song. It's repetitive, but it's repetitive in that kind of Dylan-esque late 60s, 70s way. Um, the fourth track, Big Green Country, has this big 70s energy to it. Track five, Truth Be Known, has this brilliant roominess. It's the first time that the pace really drops in it. quite languid, it's got almost a stonery vibe to it, but it's a very, very relaxed sunset drinking song. Um, track 7 on this, uh, What Happened Yesterday I think it's a sort of organ I think it's a wind organ that he uses Neil Young plays it. Yeah. Is it a pump organ? Right, so it's a reprise of the melody from Act of Love, the kind of big track. Um, the 8th track Peace and Love is really vintage Neil Young with a kind of more forceful backing contingent uh, another real highlight on it would be number nine throw your hatred down which is okay it's a little bit cheesy but it's got that rocking in the free world sort of unabashed optimism No, he just he just he, he isn't too self-aware on these tracks. He just likes to do something positive and uplifting. And then I think the other one that really jumps out is Scenery Track 10, which has a really big desert rock vibe. Looking at the 
and yeah, I, as I say, I, I, I'm not suggesting for a minute it's even anywhere close to Neil Young's best record. But in terms of live experiments, fully live, written, even more to the point, written in a very condensed space and time, getting two artists who were operating at a very high level, especially Pearl Jam at that point, who on their own could be a bit much, but feel tempered with Neil Young's looseness, his bluesiness. It's a really good mix. It saves them becoming too sickly, the way that Pearl Jam can get stodgy, you know, but overwrought and he, Neil Young doesn't really do overwrought he's got quite a frail voice I just think it's a great balance, I love it, even the aesthetic of the cover, the kind of like recycled cardboard, simple black screen printed cover it's a, it's, it's an album that I didn't expect to last anywhere near as long, I, I, I preferred at the time that I got this, I much preferred many Pearl Jam records Alice in Chains records, blah 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 none of them have lasted over the years like I, I barely listen to any of those but I'll still listen to this quite readily on a, on a good night and I think there's some really interesting and as I said unexpected about that that makes me feel like it really deserves a bit of kudos it's, it's, it's just it's a nice record, it's unpretentious and feels quite effortless and I really dig it, I've had a good what's that, 25 years out of this album now Good. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I I like it. I, it's good. Like my only contention is it counts as a studio album. That's what I would say in terms of yeah. canon. No, in canon. We, and I know you. Excuse me, though. I know. We I did, know that you. I know, to, I, know. I know that you went to great depths at the beginning of the episode to talk about recorded live, but mm-hmm. like I would just say to me a live record, and I think most people when they think about a live record means there's an audience there mm-hmm. there's a show of some sort uh, and like I'm not I'm, I'm not I'm just saying that's my only bone of contention I think it's a good record if I was do you know what if I was going to choose a Neil Young non-live or non-show but recorded fairly live record I would probably have gone Ragged Glory with Crazy Horse because I think it's just got a couple of like really standout tracks I've fucking loved I love. don't know I, see, the thing is, I think Ragged Glory's got overdubs on it. Well, yeah, and you th- might be right. And see, this is the thing, right? Well, so I get what you're saying. There's no, there's no audience there. But this is much more legitimately live than, for example, Thin Lizzy's Live and Dangerous or Rust Never Sleeps by Neil Young, which pretended to be live, which was recorded in front of an audience, but it was then much, much more heavily reworked in a studio. So I get what you're saying. But this is a live, unvarnished performance. There are no overdubs in this. Yeah. Versus those albums, which were augmented substantially. Yeah. No, I get you. I get you. I don't like Neil Young. Don't like Pearl Jam. This was just <laughs> stodgy and pretty dull for me, man. I'm sorry, but it just, it just was. Um, and a lot of the songs were way too long. Like, I, I, I like the vibe of them jamming it. It felt like they were jamming it out, which was cool. But, um. When when I suppose this, I was going to compare compare it to the Miles Davis record, but it's like it's like a completely different vibe when I jam right. You're like you're jamming two completely different fucking things there. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it just, uh, I didn't, I couldn't get into it, man. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mark. What's your uh, your your jam? What's your <laughs> like, what's your uh, improvised uh, vibe? So I picked this uh, Marlon Manson record, right? Because. Uh, I thought it was good. Last two. Yeah, I thought it was going to be funny. (laughs) 
Um, I since went on to do a lot more. Re- I always knew he was a bit of a piece of shit, this guy, right? But I went on to do a, bit, a little bit more research and a litany of spousal abuse and a particularly literal torture of Evan Rachel Wood when she was in a relationship with him when he when she was eighteen is fucking abhorrent. Um, I don't know if you guys know, but she, she, she a couple of years ago she um, testified in front of the Senate about um about mm-hmm. abuse yeah. and she she made a lot of overtures about the fact that she was 18 year old with an, a much older guy and she did he did a lot of bad things to her like like like, tor- like emotional abuse physical abuse torture tying her up all that kind of shit um she's never came out and said it was him but she was only in one relationship when she was 18 and you know yeah i mean it's, it's very, very, clear that it's very much implied um, um and i mean he's he's responded to it in the in the you know, in the interests of giving him his yeah. right to reply, I'm not denying it. <laughs> you, you can go and, you, yeah, you can, you can. No, I'm not denying it, but suggesting that that was the nature of the yeah. relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can make of that what you will, but you can you can go and read both sides yeah. of that. Um, Marlon Manson clearly sets himself up as like the ultimate villain, yet also walked a pretty that stuff. Well, I don't want to say that stuff to one side because you can't put it to one side, but. Um, a charismatic and intelligent Very man much so. who who gave some deceptively brilliant live interviews, especially on places like Fox mm-hmm. News, where he really made his mark. I think he went beyond the level of other musicians at the time who were just kind of dummies. This guy showed that he was intelligent. That's that should have no bearing on your your judgment of him in the light of the things that he's clearly done and all the things that he's done that he's never been pulled up yep, for. I mean, totally. you read these books, man. I mean, he he'll he'll happily happily admit to snorting ground up human bones for the so he can say he had whether he did or not is your guess. But all it's, it's a bit like the dirt by Motley Crue. You just then think about all the things that he's done that he won't admit to. So yeah, I mean, you, I'm afraid you have to sort of accept that we're really discussing this on its mm-hmm. merits and not on his. Um, I will say, Mark, that on its merits, I was surprised. How yeah, well, to talk is. about the album itself, so this is Marlon Manson at the height of his power and shockingly um, also coincided with Columbine. So when we talk about height of his power, we also mean height of notoriety as well, you know. Mm-hmm. During the Antichrist Superstar Tour, which was the record before, this, this, this record kind of chronicles the... Uh, the touring cycle for Mechanical Animals, which is his third album, uh, and it was like a sort of glam rock aesthetic, total like seventies kind of vibe, moving up really it was far. Very away. very Bowie, yeah. And he even had like the persona of Omega and the Mechanical Animals yeah. and this whole androgynous thing. I mean, can I just take a straw poll of you guys here? Was this? your first moment of like rumblings in your lines when you saw some guy wearing fake rubber titties <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've got to say because I think I, I mean I'm thinking back and I'm thinking I looked at those a little bit <laughs> <laughs> well you could say I don't even know like I, nah, I think I, I always fancied Brian Malko when I saw Placebo on top of the pops so well, she's hot yeah. <laughs> Um, so this was in the middle. So this this record is taken from three different tours that he did during this time. So it was a mechanical animal tour, um, which was mostly a festival kind of tour he did, and then there was a beautiful monsters tour, which was a co-tour with Hole, or like they opened they, they toured as main support to Hole, and then they did their own Rock is Dead tour after that. Elaborate stage show, and um, for the time it must have cost a fair amount of money. Can I just check? Was this the one with the sort of quasi-fascist sort of plinth and the military-style cap? And was it after this one he did the sort of bishops? No, that was after that. This was like sort of androgynous... um, Alien. Like the whole alien 
Omega sort of thing. It was after that. I think it was so with the state. Uh, the state. Uh, the, what was it? Ho- Hollywood. That was the one with like the double lightning and stuff like right, that. Right. So no, that, no, that was so that, that was, was uh, that was a Golden Age grotesque, which was two thousand and four. But this the, ah, the plinth right, thing you're uh, talking about, like whenever he does Antichrist Superstar live, he's always done it on a plinth with like the sort of lightning bolts yeah. in. Um, that's, that's always always been the case since that tour. Even on this tour, they did that um, with the burning Bible right. and and the suit and all that. Um, mm-hmm. And he had that sort of like SS sort of style cap. No, that that, that was that Hollywood right? and onwards. So yeah, Fuck um, him, okay. Yeah, obviously he plays <laughs> anyway. a lot with he plays a lot with iconography. Um, interestingly, so the the keyboardist at the time and up to two thousand and four was a guy called Madonna Wayne Gacy um, well that was his stage name um, I think his real name is Stephen Breyer um, he claims that, that Marlon Manson has a lot of Nazi memorabilia wouldn't surprise me um, so does yeah. Lemmy but anyway so this is, Mike, this is Marlon Manson at the very height of his power um, he's got a great band around him um, who've played a fucking shit ton of shows man he must have played something stupid like nearly three, two and a half um, Probably close to 200 shows in the course of a year, big shows all over the world. And this is taken for, for, from that time. Uh, Columbine actually happens during this tour. Um, there's actually a song which happened, which was recorded the day after Columbine, and which we'll talk about on the record in a wee second. Yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say, man, was it John 5 is the guitarist? Yeah. Was- just when I was unsure of the live credentials of this album it, it was his interviews where he sort of refutes any allegations of overdubs that set yeah so right. I looked into that so um, I won't go into the full quote but basically he says that this album was 100% live they recorded every show he tape and he was actually the one that listened to all of the, all of the recordings and picked the best songs so it's like there were some there were some tracks where Marlon Mance is singing a, a line and he drops the microphone or whatever it's like just bend all that but he took all the notes and listened to every single song to get this best this clip Collection of, of 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 songs. Every single song is taken from a different show on these across these three tours. So clearly, you're thinking like, "Oh fuck!" A lot of these takes are amazing, like really, really good. And um, so you're so you must have been doing really good takes of, or really good versions of those songs, like for extended periods of time when they're on the road. His, his backing band, of which John Five is the guitar player, is incredible. As Dave said before, they're pretty much all session players, apart from the bass player Twiggy Ramirez and um, the keyboardist Madonna Wayne Gacy. And even then, like he's just doing keyboards and pl- trickling his samples. Hey mate, don't shit on which keyboard is, players. Which is, which is which is which is fine. It's, it's totally fine, but like it's it's a the, lot of the, it. Hey, talk about an oppressed minority, <laughs> man. The fucking keyboard players. A lot of his backing tracks, so and and that's something I guess we should. Ebony and Ivory, about. mate. Totally. <laughs> But I love his backing uh, track. Well, John, the guy, even put it on a spring, so you'd fucking know. <laughs> John Five, though, he had like uh, he worked on the soundtrack for Speed Two Cruise Control. So you're talking class, <laughs> you're top class. That is a, that is a belt. But he also he was he was a guita- guitarist with Dave Lee Roth's band. Mm-hmm. So he was you know he was, he was playing lead guitar on Van Halen live covers. He was like fucking shit hot guitarist. That's the thing. Like you see the the ridiculous I, I don't want to say ridiculous, I saw that's dead narrow minded, but these guys look wacky. Yeah, that's the whole point, right? <laughs> I don't think that's controversial, yeah. right? And when they look that wacky you think, right, they got in the band because they look the part and you kinda of forget 
that guys like John Five and they fucking play the part mm. as well. The guitar tones in this, I mean, the guitar in this at times sounds like a fucking brass mm. section because that's a real skill in like being in a band with somebody that, like Manson or being in the the band Marlon Manson because Manson was never. Uh, I know he got tagged in with Industrial because he was hanging around with Trent Reznor and stuff like that, but he took influence from Bowie. Like Madonna, even somebody like mm-hmm. he saw himself that he was an artist, and every album was like a specific artistic statement. He just happened to be using heavy metal as his sort of output. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think he, he very much saw like an opportunity to become like the evil Madonna, mm-hmm. like like genuinely. Yeah. I, I don't. Think and I mean, he was late nineties. Yeah. It's interesting that he doesn't really fit into any musical sort of tribe uh, of that time, you know, because like in terms of. Uh, alternative rock well you had the alternative rock like and you know stuff like Rage Against the Machine and Tool then you had New Metal Industrial you had Grunge or the Dying Embers of Grunge and you had New Metal and then you had Marilyn Manson who could play with any of those bands and you know headline any of those festivals but he didn't really sound like any of them at the time I was pretty sceptical of Marilyn Manson Don't, I, I loved Antichrist Superstar I, I, I loved um, Smells Like Children but I grew mm. out of him really fast and I got tired of shtick really fast and I got really into quite earnest stuff like Tool. I just, I, I had a very short fuse when it came to the glam, silly OTT stuff and then we got into Cold Chamber and all that shit. And I think being forced to go back to it, I realised what a fucking consistently excellent hit maker Marilyn Manson, the act is when you go back to it with the benefit of time and you're over uh, you know I'm over my kind of po-facedness in my early 20s where I'm like trying to be like Mr. Ernest Hardcore Kid I'm like oh Marlon Manson's silly going back to it you're like shit man this guy's got so many tunes mm. this is actually pretty killer yeah Mechanical ma- that- mechanical Animals had some like just massive pop hits and like the way the songs are arranged is so simple you know it's like you know intro verse in, you he, know middle eight chorus he's, chorus he's astute He's very astute in his songwriting. It's, it's it's really brilliantly minimal. It doesn't. Yeah, I mean, it gave me. I think even just listening to this live album gave me a whole new level of respect for the the brevity and the the craft in their songwriting. They managed to create such a huge crossover appeal for such an extreme and controversial style mm. of music. Yeah. Do you know what? Funnily enough, like a lot of it reminded me of peak era Def Leppard, <laughs> but with added camp. Yeah. And 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 Adidas. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, like, don't get me wrong. Like, I loved this record when it came out because, I, like, I was a proper wee fucking new metal goth kid. You know what I mean? And then this record never really truly left me because I'd always come back to it because it does. And everyone's going to be listening to us going, "These guys are fucking mental." This is going to be shit. No, it sounds amazing. This is like it sounds incredible. I mean. This Incredible. is like, and see, see if you are like much like Chris was, right? Think it was overdubbed. Go online, and you can actually find VHS footage of these shows, and this is exactly what they sound like, with backing tracks and everything. I th- I, there are points in it, especially coming through the background of late production, where the backing tracks are a little bit obvious, and actually, there's ways they could have avoided that because there's a couple of like in uh, beautiful people, they insisted on having Manson himself do the oh when they didn't really mm. need to. You know, they could they could have easily got one of the guitarists to do that line live, and because of him insisting on doing that, 
they had to use a backing track or incorporate that into an existing backing track. So they, they could have done a little bit more of this live and you can hear the backing track pushing through at certain moments. But when it comes to some of the huge guitar drops, it's some of the choruses, man, are so fucking big. So well, let's talk about some of the songs, Do man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. there's obviously an intro, which is if, if you see it live, he came up on a cross made of TVs, which is the most Malamansa thing ever that was in then set on fire. Can we just get actually what... While you're setting the scene, can we just point out that all through this this uh, record, he baits the cops like yeah. fuck. <laughs> I mean, like, there's there's lines in it where he's like, oh, there's like a hundred policemen in here waiting for us to put a foot wrong and then they'll arrest us. Then he makes jokes about the cops wanting to suck his dick and stuff like that. I'm like, no wonder you got lifted, yeah. man. Did you not, yeah, did he not pee on one at some point? Uh, yeah, he was charged with assault for doing he put, that. Yeah. He, he, put his, he put his testicles in the head of a yep. security guard and got busted for that. Yeah, um, but the first song is The Reflecting God, which is from Antichrist Superstar. It's a really good song. And one of the things that I like about this record is is that it's you actually hear his voice for what it is. At this time, it was... This is his voice at its absolute best. He's been going long enough to get full control mm-hmm. over it, but when you hear his voice now, it is fucking blown out completely it's this is the this is the absolute um halcyon mm. moment of Marilyn Manson singing definitely and, when it and it also doesn't it, he doesn't sound like anybody else really yeah like yeah. especially I mean it's fact. distinctly him yeah. it's a to- it's a, you know in terms of signatures it's as recognizable as Trump's you know apparently um he he's like one producer was saying that like he's capable of singing five tones at once which is insane because he's not a great singer he's just a really good screamer who's got a lot of melodic control over it his croon is quite cool and it's actually on this record as well um, but when his voice comes in the reflecting god it's like you're just not expecting it to be that prominent because you I think maybe you're probably the same well what Chris kind of hinted at before he listened to it was like was well, that overdubbed because it's just so fucking perfect do you know what I mean and there's a lot of things on this record where yeah. it goes off a little bit but not Egregiously so. Um, there's there's a lot of siblings and peepops which kind of make it make it give it this vocal like the live thing. But the bass tone is mm-hmm. fucking huge, man. It's just like rattles like mm-hmm. fucking in. I have to say though, see with this record, the first two tracks in it didn't get me. They didn't get me going. Well, I they're I mean, they're not maybe, big hits. You know, they're not no, they're not like and, they wouldn't ever be on a best of. Exactly. It's it's but it's in track three when he does Great Big White World that that the fuse is lit mm-hmm. for me, man. That's that's when it goes next totally. level. The first two to, the first two tunes you're really doing a sort of cerebral and an cerebral analysis going, Alright, okay, tones are good, his voice is good, the production's good, blah blah blah. But it's not until the tune of the third song that you're like, holy shit. My God, I can imagine seeing that. That's He's amazing. played that live at every single show since this record, since that record came out, since Mechanical Animals came out. I, it, it's absolutely it's epic. Brilliant. Man. It's, it's, it's an epic fucking tune. His voice is incredible on it, and the slabs of guitar that come in in that chorus are 
I mean, you can't, that's what I mean. This is one of those songs where I didn't care about it at the time. I was dismissive of Marilyn Manson, but you can't fuck with it in hindsight. Yeah. It's, it's a really, really great bit of like alternative. The backing rock. track in the chorus, which is very clear, is, is basically a, a layered guitar. Just get another guitar player to sit, stand behind the stage and play it. You know what I mean? Like, you, you didn't <laughs> need to have a backing track for that, but he obviously did it anyway. Um, by the way, by the way, sorry, deviation, but did you know that Ozzy Osbourne has a singer behind the curtain now for really? his live shows? It doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, yeah. the man can hardly t- walk or talk. Yeah. How's he supposed to sing for an hour and a half? <laughs> that's that one. That's awesome. Marlon should do that because his voice is absolutely guff these days. <laughs> he should. I wish Marlon Manson would do that nowadays, man. I saw him at Donington and the, the live footage that was on the iPlayer, man. It's absolutely punishing. Um, but yeah, everything sounds huge in this song and it's great. And then there's a really old song, Get Your Gun, which I don't really want to talk about too much because it's, it's fine. fine. Yeah, it's and then Sweet right, Dreams, right. which is cool. Oh man, Sweet Dreams is. I mean, it's got to be one of the ultimate arena mm-hmm. moments. It connects with everybody. Whether or not you're really into heavy metal, the Marlon Manson rendition of Sweet Dreams is arguably as famous now as the, yeah. the original mm-hmm. version of Sweet Dreams. And to see it live and to hear it in live performance and the excitement of the crowd and the way he kind of teases them a bit by mixing it up with like little bits and bobs of other songs, it's, it's yeah, it's pretty unbeatable. Yeah, there's a it's reason why my high school band covered it. <laughs> And we covered it because <laughs> our rival high school band also covered it. Yes. And but they did it too slow. They did it. They did it too we fast. just did a punk version of it. Um, they did it too slow. But yeah, it was like a go-to... Because it's easy to play. Like, that's kind of a reason why, like, throughout this record, you know, they don't fuck up often. It's because they keep it simple. But it really fucking works. Because they're painting broad strokes, but, like, really yeah. good broad strokes. I mean, it, that's the whole point of arena shows, right? Is that everybody wants to sing along. And, I mean, there's no more uh, fitting tune to, to that end. Yeah. yeah. It's followed by two songs from Mechanical Animals, Rock is Dead and The Dope Show. Every single song on this record that's from Mechanical Animals sounds a thousand times better live on this record than it does on the, on the album, and I actually quite like the album. They actually had a female backing singer who was with them on tour the whole time, um, so that's not... Pure yeah. gospel, kind of... Yeah. Like Pink Floyd. Which is on the album yeah. as well, so it was pretty cool to have that. Um, you, you know what, I have to be honest, uh, Rock is Dead, fine, man. Dope Show is the best song on it's this. It's great, man. Dope Show is tremendous. It's, it's do tremendous. you know, like, on, on the live, on the studio version, it's, it's really kind of stereo sound obviously because that's like the kind of vibe of the album it's not just glam rock but it's also supposed to be this kind of weird alien kind of unearthly, unearthly thing, thing yeah, yeah. yeah and this is just like full bore like massive arena glam rock it slabs a guitar massive fucking keyboards man um, his voice sounds way more druggy and it's kind of more affectionate I guess um, or affectation sorry that's what I'm trying to say um, it's just I love it man it's just so glam only Marlon Manson could do it like that you know it's pretty cool um, it's got Lunchbox which is fine again another old song fine I don't like the dogs which has got the most fucking stupid intro like <laughs> yeah I mean you have to, that's like man. you have to be live you have to be at the arena and also 15 years old to be into that pattern yeah I was drowning in 
a sea of liquor and I washed up on a beach made of cocaine Fuck, man. But you got... Come on. I mean, Marilyn Manson, one of the secrets to his success was his grasp of a catchphrase, right? Just in a snippet of some of the tracks in this album, you've got the lines, we hate love, we love hate. You've got, like, I don't like the drugs, but the drugs like me. You've got hate every motherfucker that gets in your way. I mean, the guy just basically wrote t-shirts his entire <laughs> career you know it's, it's incredible talent for like a pull yeah. quote it's amazing and so he's part completely consistent with that that talent for a stupid teenage puerile gothy my parents piss me off pull mm-hmm. quote I mean why not why not do it so, live interesting fact about this song which is definitely worth mentioning is this this recording is from the day after Columbine <laughs> And the Michigan Michigan State Senate, because it was in Cedar Rapids, um, Dale Sugars actually went to the show with his policy advisors, t- like to see what, like if to kind of get laid a land, I guess, I suppose. Uh, and like he, he's then later on to do an interview, basically saying that like kids are under Marilyn Manson's spell; they're going to become violent drug abusers and all that, you know, properly fucking yeah. and saying stuff. Um, and also that th- this particular show was cut short because it, when he did Antichrist Superstar. Somebody slapped a big happy face sticker on the front of the podium and he took a massive tantrum and just stormed off stage. <laughs> Such a nobbing. Um Which is... Um, but talk, talking of which though, man, Antichrist Superstar on this and, I, I mean, and Into Beautiful People mm-hmm. as well, they are also very, very fucking... Yeah. Has Marilyn Manson done anything more iconic than Beautiful People? No. I mean, I know he's got bigger, bigger singles, but that. No, is I just... mean, I've, I, I still play that DJ nights. You know, even on a fucking night full of nineteen-year-old dance fans, full of Ekkies, you play Beautiful People, and it goes down a fucking treat. You might know a really, really odd thought experiment mm-hmm. to, to conduct, and I, I challenge you and the listeners to do this. Right, mm-hmm. go and listen. Go and listen to beautiful people, but imagine it played by Queens of the Stone Age. Okay. Oh right. yeah, I, now, I can get that. No, hang on. I know it it, it. it it sounds daft, but see the mod, the kind of modality of it. The 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 his sensibilities in that song, the chord changes. I absolutely guarantee you that Queens of Stone Age could have slowed that down by about 15 BPM and done an incredible version mm-hmm. of it. And I don't know why, but just this live version of it makes that even more abundantly clear. I mean, you're right, both, like, the last... In fact, I actually quite like Irresponsible Hate Anthem as well. I think those last three songs in a row, they were actually all closing songs from different shows. Like, on certain days of the tour, they would either close with an increase of star or be of people or irresponsible hate anthem so they're actually picked from different shows so they're the last song basically three times in a row mm-hmm. um, an increase of a star is just fucking huge right it sounds like it's going to eat you 
it's like a fucking burning star, do you know what I mean? And then beautiful people, it's like, it's like the blueprint, like you said, it's just, you're going to get dancing to that, always. I don't think he would ever have got to where he got to if it wasn't for beautiful people. You could, even, regardless of how good the songs were that came after it, he could have had the exact same catalogue, but without that, to break the ice... I just I don't think it would have worked out. He definitely knows that as well because all of his biggest hits after that have got the exact same format. Like Rock is Dead, <laughs> Disposable Teens as well, like in Hollywood, like the next two albums have got a song that sounds quite similar to this. Yeah. He yeah. loves a he loves a background chant like a Hi Yeah Hi Hi Loves a bit of that, and doesn't he? And what's uh, it's it's a great choice. Um you know that song The Last Yeah, The Last uh, Day on Earth Man, so last day first Earth. first ever time this was played live and it was the last time it was played until two thousand and twelve as well. It was actually played in Las Vegas New Year's Eve nineteen ninety eight. The song itself in the album doesn't sound like this, it's not acoustic. Uh, it's, I think it's a really interesting choice to, to effectively end the record because the last song is a studio recording. Um, it's part of his. It's, it's part of his Bowie fan totally, yeah. song. The, the live version. It's very much down. Ziggy that, Stardust kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah the, I mean, it's cool. Like bringing in different instrument in, instrumental parts at different points is pretty cool. A starts with acoustic guitar. You're bringing a bit of keys. You're bringing a bit of the bass. You know, it, it layers really well, and the fact you can sing it. Is, is is a true testament to him actually being able to do some kind of vocal ability because he's I don't I don't I never really rated him so much as a singer more as a as a, like I said like a screamer but he proves he can actually croon pretty well on this song which I think is cool. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of the song, but it's an interesting inclusion. And then the last song is uh, the single that was released to promote this album, basically. A Star Wars Panorama at the end times. It's got the Celebrity Deathmatch video. I don't know if you've seen it. Pure tacton. Yeah, totally tacton. And everything on, everything on that song is, sounds fake as fuck. Like, everything's digital. The drums, the bass, the guitar. It just sounds yeah. really horrible and industrial. It's a shame that that's what they chose to pull out of it. Yeah. It. it was after Colin Bounce, so yeah, I suppose. Like, it must have been a weird time. When you weren't allowed analog instruments anymore, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a, it's a good choice, man. I was surprised at how well it had aged, uh, or at least from a sort of, I, I think just from a, a sort of technical perspective, I was impressed at the proficiency of the band and the quality of the recording and all that kind of stuff. I was like, it it did give it did make me see them in a new light. Yeah, I mean the label obviously had quite a lot invested in them at this point because he was he was infamous, you know. So they they threw money at stage show so. Um, They'd have to have been really good life to to kind of pull it off. Um, I just found it really nostalgic. You know, it like took me back to being like a naive goth sixteen year old or fifteen year old. Yeah, man, same. <laughs> but also, like, there was something kind of naive about the nineties and Marilyn Manson. You know, being Public Enemy number one and stuff like that. It was like those were truly the golden times. You know, <laughs> man. Yeah, <laughs> it just reminds me of fucking South Park and uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, man. I, it was a nice um, little um, time capsule. Th- there's one thing I'm really excited about though, and it's to know how Mark managed to link Marlon Manson oh. to Abdul Kader Kamil Mohammed, the Prime Minister <laughs> of Djibouti. Fucking brilliant! I'm telling you. <laughs> 
This is the first time we're seeing Nexus tonight. Will it be the last? What do they have in store this for us? Not good for Why am I here? You're in the Nexus. This is the Nexus. For you. This is what you want. Can I just check, are we, like, are people voting for their favourite one, or...? I don't think it'd be a, a good thing to do, to be honest. I don't know. Well, we do... No, we do the three-way vote I, I there. I don't think it, I don't think so, man. I don't think you should. We've done it in the I past. Not with something this fucking diverse. <laughs> we did it. We 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 did it with a commie one, and I like let folk vote, man. Right, okay. I mean, I don't. I don't think anybody of any of us would be angry if no. um, any of these went in, and then all like or if we, all of these have their merits, man. I, to be honest, I'm probably the weakest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, Mark, you want to go then? Yeah. So, who we who we link into, and who who chose it? <laughs> David, uh, it was chosen by a Mr. Dave Weaver. Oh, yep. It's maybe somebody on Twitter. <laughs> cool. Uh, and he chose Abdul Kader Kamil Mohammed, the Prime Minister of Djibouti. <laughs> yeah, sorry, everybody. <laughs> right, okay, so um, as we know, as we've kind of briefly hinted, Marga Manson uh, and Trent Reznor were really fucking good pals. He was oh, on right. his record label, nothing. Even after they stopped talking, he was, he was still on his record label. Trent Reznor's obviously made a ton of music uh, and recently been moving into doing soundtracks and stuff. In 2016, he did one for a film called Before the Flood, which was a collaboration between him, Atticus Ross, Mogwai and Gustavo Santanala. Is that the film about global yeah. warming? Um, Mogwai themselves have also done a fair few soundtracks, as we've discussed before, and one such has mm-hmm. been uh, one such as uh, Zinedine Zidane. A 21st century mm-hmm. portrait. Zinedine mm-hmm. Zidane is a French footballer, uh, ex footballer, is currently the manager for Real Madrid. He actually retired in 2006 and then was asked by Jose Mourinho to be a special advisor to Real Madrid in 2010. He then became sporting director in 2011 and then at that time he registered for a two year sporting diploma at the University of, the University of Limoges in France. Limoges. I can't believe you've got there already. <laughs> What, what Dave said. Yes, yeah, studying at the Centre of Law and Sports... He studied at the Centre of Law and Sports Finance, got his diploma and then became the Real Madrid manager B-team. And uh, your man, the, the, the Djibouti Prime Minister, also went to the same fucking university. Not at the same time, obviously, but yeah. Wow, that's very impressive. Just like that. <laughs> yeah, good job. Uh, well, Miles Davis, he... Wait a minute, are we doing it in reverse? Chronology? Oh yeah, I don't know. Yeah, right, you go. You go then. I mean, I've got a ripper here. Man, so. <laughs> right, you go last because mine's fairly quick. Uh, basically, there was a music film called Miles Ahead, uh, which is a sort of such a cheesy fucking name. Isn't yeah, it? I know it's terrible. Um, wh- what do you call them again? Bio biopic. Yeah. It's not a biopic. biopic. It's a biopic, um, <laughs> and it was directed by Don Don Cheadle. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Fucking hell. So Don Cheadle, he of the worst Cockney accent of all time in <laughs> Ocean's Eleven. Don Cheadle um, was nominated for an Academy Award as hotel manager Paul Rasabagina in Hotel Rwanda, 2004. Yeah, his, his finest performance was in The Guard. 
Opposite Brendan. I agree. <laughs> I agree. Such a fucking good film. A good film. Amazing film. Amazing film. But yeah, sorry, Hotel Rwanda is fantastic. You're right. uh, yeah, now I just... So Rwanda and Digibooty recently <laughs> launched a joint venture um, which will see the development of Digibooty's land in Rwanda. Digibooty owns a 10-hectare piece of land in the Kigali Special Economic Zone. Um, Can I just check? Is it pronounced Digibooty as though it's a sort well? Of I don't know. That's country. what I always <laughs> what I always said in my head when I was little because I used I to just, just read just atlases. But I think it's just Djibouti, G- isn't it? Djibouti, Djibouti, Djibouti. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Djibouti does sound like their website. Djibouti, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Digibooty, Digi- 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 That sounds like. <laughs> Did you know? Yeah, well, so anyway, yeah. Um, Rwanda and Djibouti have come to this very small agreement on. Developing ten hectares of land, but you know it's it's big it's big in the new times. Rwanda's leading daily. Small agreement. And uh, yeah, Abdul Kader Kamil Mohammed is the prime minister and has been since uh, two thousand and thirteen. He's the leader of okay. uh, People's Rally for Progress, who are a good socialist political party. Are they? Though? Well, who knows? <laughs> uh, okay, uh, Neil Young. Fucking hates Monsanto, <laughs> especially on the subject of GM crops. Um, so Neil Young in 2014 uh, called for a boycott of the coffee chain Starbucks, uh, kind of due to them resisting calls regarding GM labelling on their products. Let's not go down the GM route, but yeah, that's uh, that's a bit of a mess. Anyway, 1995, Starbucks, the coffee chain, uh, launched Frappuccinos along with a drink called Mazagran. Now, you guys probably haven't heard of Mazagran no. from Starbucks. It was discontinued because it was very unpopular. <laughs> um, but basically, uh, it was actually... Mazagran was launched as a... Uh, I don't know how to define it. Basically, it was one of the first ever joint venture on that scale between two drinks companies. It was launched with PepsiCo, and it was a sparkling coffee soda. Mm. All right. Uh. Uh, it's actually Mazagran is a traditional Algerian drink. Uh, in in Algeria, it's basically just iced coffee. It's coffee uh, on ice uh, with a little bit of water to dilute it. But there's a Portuguese kind of colonial version, which is uh, ice, lemon, mint, and rum. There's a Catalonian version, which is ice and lemon. I think there's a. There's another version, maybe Austrian, that's uh, ice and rum. But it's it's basically seen as being like the original version of iced tea. But the, the version that Starbucks put out with PepsiCo was sparkling. It didn't really work. But to make it work, uh, it, it relied on a coffee essence that had been uh, developed. And that, that same coffee essence is the, the coffee essence that made the whole Frappuccino concept possible. All the sort of cold spin-off coffees and bottled coffees and all that kind of stuff, that all comes from Mazagran. And that uh, that coffee essence was developed by a guy called Don Valencia. And Don Valencia, despite having an incredibly fucking cool name if he wanted to go into 80s pop, was an immunologist who was researching mo- molecular isolation uh, I don't know if it's a company, but he set up Immunoconcepts, and Immunoconcepts focuses on uh, rheumatic conditions, including things like vasculitis. Uh, it's it's autoimmune diseases and stuff. And he was he was actually trying to use the technology to isolate these different molecules. And I don't know when he got the inspiration to do this, but he decided to try isolating the mo- molecules of coffee as an experiment to see how well this new machinery was working. And it worked really well. And supposedly him and his neighbour, he would go out every morning and give his neighbour a blind taste test. And this went on for like weeks. 
as he gradually refined the <laughs> process until it got to the point where after a certain number of days the neighbour hadn't been able to tell which one was the isolated coffee and which one was the actual coffee at which point he realised that he had struck gold and he'd worked out a way to isolate coffee molecules and use them, coffee essences effectively and use them for other products but yeah, so he made immunoconcepts immunoconcepts focused on things like vasculitis which is to do with the blood vessel swelling uh, due to uh, an immune reaction um, one of the top places in the entire world to research vasculitis is the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham. The Queen Elizabeth Hospital is named after Queen Elizabeth II, uh, the British monarch that's somehow still alive. The first ever uh, female governor general of Australia uh, was a woman called Quentin Bryce, a woman called Quentin Bryce, uh, who served from 2008 to 2014, and she is the the Queen's representative in Australia, effectively the monarch's representative. She's also actually the head of the army. But yeah, so she's the, she stands in for the crown. Quentin Bryce, if you look up Wikipedia, out of 14,801 pages classified as politicians on Wikipedia, Quentin Bryce is number 12,390. <laughs> and uh, I, I think you'll find that uh, Abdul Kader Kamil Mohammed, the Prime Minister of Djibouti, is uh, number 12,389, <laughs> one place above her. <laughs> wow. Christ. <laughs> God, you left it to the end to pull yeah. pull the golden ticket oh, out. I can hear I can hear the barrel being scraped as as we speak. Um, talking about the barrel being scraped, David, I believe you have chosen a band with dreadlocks for the the next episode. Oh, they cancelled <laughs> cultural appropriation. Yeah, a band with dreadlocks, a band that do posh white English middle class poetry in the middle of their song. I saw them uh, supporting Dillinger Escape. Um, They are also to blame uh, for one of the shittest genres of all time. Um, What's that? uh, Gent. Gent. (laughs) But um, yeah, I've gone for Sixth. S I K T H. S I K T H. And the. What's. Right, okay. Do you want me to say it, David? The trees are dried up. Now no. wait for something wild. No, no. The What's trees are dead and dried up. Wait for something wild. That was close, but fucking <laughs> hell, man! I can tell this is going to be a long week. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to pull out uh, a nexus for sixth. You guys ready for assistant it? prime minister of Djibouti? <laughs> <laughs> Oh wow, Did this is pretty good one. This is by a uh, regular listener, Jen Ho, oh. and uh, she has chosen the thirteenth Dalai Lama. Oh great! Okay, right. sixth to the Dalai Lama. I have a feeling there's a New Age connection there. That's yeah, I've, that I feel like <laughs> the link is Glastonbury, pretty much. So uh, cool. The the link is hemp yeah. somewhere. Yep, slack lines um, in the park. Cool. All right. Well, uh, it was an epic fun time. I wish we had an audience to cheer us out and and to clamour for an encore, but alas, they don't. I know. Just put one. So, in. Uh, yeah. Yeah, just <laughs> that's what they're doing with the yeah. football that's on right I, now. Is there? Uh, you can choose a channel with uh, like that. fake sounds from FIFA, fake crowd sounds. Fuck it. So. This entire bit has been done to a fake standing ovation. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> See you next time. We'll see you uh, this time next week. Uh, uh, travel safely, get home safe. Um, stop by the merch stand on the way out. Avoid any racists in Lidl. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Find Mark's bike. Yeah. Good night. Good night. Bye. Bye.